Welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a film, we review it, we talk about it, and we discuss some of the ideas and themes it throws up. And as always, we'll end with our recommendations or further reading inspired by the film of the week. Before we kick off with this week's movie, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. Now Sam, you're laid up, so I'm expecting good things from you here. Yeah, and also I happen to know that you haven't had much time for lots of watching, so I, I will try and dazzle everyone and go first. I have a couple of things I've been watching and something I've been reading actually. The reading first is a brilliant comic book by Edward Ross about the history of film and the way in which people use film and power and ideology in film but also the technical aspects of film as well. It's a book called Filmish which came out last year. You mentioned this on Twitter. It is brilliant. Very good. I would heartily recommend that. And then a couple of things I've been watching. One on your recommendation was the original Rollerball from 1975. Ah, uh, yes. Which, it, it, was, it, was really, it was really enjoyable. And I was also struck by how slow it was. Mm. And that might be something that comes back to us today, is that the pace of films may have changed. And I was intrigued, actually, to watch the remake and see what they'd done to this more recently. Not intrigued enough to actually watch the remake, but I did wonder what they'd done with the more modern remake. Rollerball's one of those films that everyone thinks about the matches, Mm. and everyone forgets about everything else happens in that film. With a lot of 70s films, I think that's 70s films. That's the case, yeah. Then another one was the... 2000 film Memento with Guy Pearce, which it took me a, a long time to watch. Rob's mentioned that I'm laid up and my, I'm recuperating at the moment, so my time tends to be structured around naps and playing with the cat and staring into space. So it, something has to grab me for me to spend a great deal of time watching it uninterrupted, and Memento didn't, frankly. I could see what Christopher Nolan was doing. I enjoyed the way the story was told, but I just didn't get on board with the film. I don't I didn't particularly like Guy Pierce. Maybe that was it. Mm. Maybe it was just I didn't didn't like the actor, but I didn't feel this film engaged me in the way that I kind of hoped it would from the structure. Interesting interesting aside, on Memento, on the DVD you can watch the film in order. For those of you who don't know, the film's told in a series of I suppose, increasing flashbacks as the character recovers memories and that sort of thing. There is an option to watch it in a full chronological order on the DVD. And it is the dullest film. Uh. It is one of those films where the form, the form of the film trumps the function. And that's that the form makes it interesting. There are many other films like this, I'm sure we can mm. talk about this in the future at some point. But it is very, very interesting that in that film that if you watch it, in the chronological order, but out of the narrative order, it really isn't interesting at all. Mm. It becomes a subpar thriller. Well, as Sam mentioned, I haven't had a lot of spare time recently with the, the birth of my first child. Congratulations. Thank you. I said this in your absence last week, but we should say it once you're here. So congratulations, Steve. Thank you very kindly. She's a delight. I'm looking forward to the, the, the films I'll make her watch. So we haven't actually watched much because my life has lived in sort of half-hour sections the last few weeks. That being said, I have caught up with the entire season two of Mr. Robot, which is brilliant. Frustrating, maddening, but brilliant. 
I've caught up with season four, I think it is, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is fun, frothiness. And the only film I have watched in the last three weeks was the first Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which I'm sure Sam will probably doesn't, doesn't like or has never seen. I just feel he's going to like it. Um, but I really like it, and it's a lot of fun. So that is one film we have actually watched. Uninventful, uninspiring, but I've been busy. Right. I have no opinion on it at all, because as you suspect, I've never seen it. We'll change that in time, it's fine. Oh, good. <laughs> this week, and it's been a while since we've been contributing to our franchise season, but this week we continue on the season with the next franchise, is The Matrix, starting with the 1999 action film, The Matrix. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Written and directed by the Wachowski brothers, The Matrix stars Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss. It depicts a dystopian future and it talks about the way in which the vast majority of humanity are locked inside something called The Matrix, created by sentient machines. And it's something which we would view now as the world, but the, the world is a matrix. And it's about the the adventures, I suppose, of the central character, played by Keanu Reeves, Neo, in this world and outside this world on a ship captained by Lawrence Fishburne called the Nebuchadnezzar. And The Matrix is famous for its visual effects primarily, but it also has a certain amount of story attached. I'm dancing around the plot here. But I think we should get into, we should go with the spoiler warning up front, because we will be spoiling this, although this is something that I think pretty much everyone will have seen. So Rob, your thoughts on The Matrix? Um, the Matrix is a hard film to talk about in many ways, because it's it came out in our probably late teenage years, so I'd have been 17 and Sam would have been 16. And... It's so integral to part of that part of my growing up and the experience of seeing it with my brother um, and seeing it with my friends. I sometimes think I'm giving it more a pass than it deserves. But with that caveat in place, I really, really, really enjoy The Matrix. I think it is exciting. I think it is the action scenes are brilliant. I think that the acting talent matches the aspirations of the movie. Which is a backhand way of saying that Keanu can be a bit wooden, as can Carrie Anne Moss, but they match the roles that they're, they're trying to do here. I think that visually, as Sam touched on there, it's amazing the visual effects, and beyond the visual effects, the look of the film, the set dressing, the set design, the production design, all that sort of thing kind of works beautifully in this film. 
I think that it's one of those films that you can now look at it and see if you, if you don't know its place in history, it can look a little bit like a very cliche pastiche of a lot of other action films we're seeing these days. But it is worth noting that this is one of the precursors to the modern action film, one of the, one of the sort of the, the early proto films that birthed a lot of what we have these days in the kind of Michael Bay fast cutting action scenes, and obviously the influence of Eastern kung fu movies and. Hong Kong action films on a Western filmmaking ethos. Mm. These are kung fu films. There's a great line: he's, "I know kung fu." You know, they don't learn street brawling, something like from like Die Hard. This isn't the army style superhero. Keanu isn't that kind of body beautiful, you know, hard body style action hero. He is thin and lithe and flexible in that respect. Sam. Before we dive into the sort of the, the meat of the episode, what were your thoughts? Um, I think that, I mean, as as you said, it's something that's sort of integral to the experience of being a teenager. And I remember liking it, but not thinking great things about it. And thinking maybe at the time that it was a bit overrated. And I don't know whether this is sort of this is teenage me being a bit precious about things. What? You, Sam? Never. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> or whether it's what I was gen- generally thinking at the time. But I I get the feeling that at the time I thought, yeah, it's good, but maybe it's not as amazing as everyone says it is. And so I was pleased to go back to it and see how thoroughly brilliant it was. And I really enjoyed this. And I mentioned how bad I've been at watching films in their entirety recently and this is one that I definitely did watch in its entirety mm. it was brilliant there were, I mean we can talk a lot about the visual things and, and the use of certain techniques you can talk about how they how the Chasky brothers use as you said elements of kung fu but also things from Hong Kong movie making we can talk about that or you could you could talk about the the way the the narrative works and all the nods to other things and there's some really clever uh, it's something that we talked about last week when you went here the idea of influence and how this film is shaped so much by not just other films but French philosophy of the early 1980s and that's not something you can say about about me-headed action films from the late 1990s not at all but this is hugely indebted to Baudrillard and what he was writing about in 1981. And I was just, uh, I loved how clever this film was, how unapologetically clever this film was. Mm. It's one of those films that it feels, it snuck itself in as a kung fu actioner, but it really has some things to say about other stuff. Mm. And I, I, I want to touch more on this next week. I think it's more interesting to talk about some things in terms of the second or third films, but the idea of free will is a very important thing that comes in over the franchise. And this one deals with things like destiny, the whole role of the Oracle to tell people what the future is, what their future is, that has led to this moment. So, moving into spoilers now, guys, you know, she told Morpheus that he will find the one, she told Trinity that she will fall in love with the one, but then told Neo that he wasn't the one. But she told him he wasn't the one. So that he could then realise on his own that he was the one. 
And there's all this kind of destiny, it's predestination, you know, where we're always destined to end up here. And this is where we get into some of the, sort of the machine versus human thesis of these films, of what is machine, what's a human, where do the lines blur? And I think, as I said, I don't want to kind of put, a, put a little pin in that whole idea of free will and destiny till next week, because I think the second film has far more interesting things to say about that sort of stuff. Mm. The thing that, for me, that most interests me, and it's something that I think I pitched to Sam way, way, way back when we first started doing The Prestige, was the idea of films as technical spectacles. Yes. In which I mean that some films, and this one particularly, are sold to the general wider audience on their technical aspects. With this, you've got the, maybe not the invention, but certainly the the mainstreaming and the, the uh, and sort of the codifying of bullet time as a technique hasn't been widely adopted elsewhere. But the, the, the moment when one person leaps in the air or bends over and the camera just swoops around them in like a freeze frame moment, it is entirely freeze frame. There is a little bit of motion in there, but there's that moment and, and this technical aspect of this. And this is how, as I recall from back in the day in the nineties, this is how the film was very much sold to the to the audience that we you saw things on TV about how they made this film. It isn't about what was about the story, but it was about how they made the film. And that links this film being a technical film in terms of computing and in terms of technology. But there is the idea of a film being played that people are going to see it because of the film rather than the narrative. Mm. I'm trying to think of the better word from the film, but the physical filmmaking process something like not wholeheartedly that way but my Titanic Titanic was sold to the audience as the most expensive film ever made it's it's about the spectacle rather than the narrative mm. and they, they have now the narrative and obviously they're part of this marketing and there are things selling it on on the um on the narrative itself but like we talk about we've talked in the past about the Marvel films but no one looks at the Marvel films and goes yeah technically pushing the boundaries even to talk about my own career for a moment i've worked on a marvel film and they're brilliant films to work on they're they're fun films to watch but no one's pushing the boundary in filmmaking technology no that isn't what they're there for something like gravity was very much pushing that boundary gravity was sold to the audience as you have to see this film you have to see it on the big screen because it's all about that spectacle and there were articles about how we made that film and they were behind the scenes and all that kind of thing. And that's an interesting film. The making of is interesting in a way that other films aren't. And I think this is the first one in my lifetime. I mean, obviously that there are for the Ben Hurs and that sort of stuff. There are other films that come before it, but this is the first one I remember in my lifetime of being sold that the film making process here was worth appreciating as well as the narrative. Mm. And I think actually we can go further than that because you said that you don't think the bullet time is something that's caught on. But I think even if the exact technique hasn't caught on, this idea of using a camera in an interesting way has caught on. And it's something that, for example, someone like Michael Bay will do now mm. as a matter of course, and he won't think about what he's doing in a technical way. Um, but there is something that they've laid the groundwork for in when you, you get an explosion in Transformers, for example, and you get the explosion shot in a particular way. Well, that's indebted to the way that the Wachowski brothers were were filming fight scenes 10 or 15 years earlier. 
Mm. I think that's. I mean, just watching it, watching it the other day. The first, the first scene in which Trinity has to escape the agents does so many interesting things with the camera work. You have the bullet time when she leaps up and does the crane kick. You've got them running across the rooftops in slow motion and then not slow motion and back slow motion. You've got there's a shot where well the agent stops and starts shooting at her. And instead of being the traditional sort of, you know, horizontal camera, the camera cuts to being directly above them. Which isn't something you see before. Like literally it goes from seeing them shooting each other to you're getting the top down view of him firing at and that is not that isn't standard filmic practice, standard filmic language. So very early on, they're sitting out their stall of, you know, this is something interesting to watch. Mm. And I think it hits its pinnacle later on when you get the infamous lobby scene in which Neo and Trinity storm the government buildings. And it's all slow-mo, bullet time, all that kind of thing. And the music beautifully works with it, you know. The jump, the early jump with Trinity, when she leaps over the field, the music, which has been bubbling along, just... Woo, as she kind of leaps, you, you feel that leap with the music. I think they very much in that opening five minutes set up their stall of this is how we're doing things. Mm. Some, something else you've been thinking about there was that reading up on that lobby scene, Keanu Reeves was really restrictive in what he could do. Mm. And if you look back at that scene with that knowledge, you can see how Carry On Moss is moving much more freely than Keanu Reeves because he had an injury during preparation for the film that meant that he couldn't prepare in the same way as the others. And that's something that, that interested me because when you look at the first scene, the first major scene with Keanu Reeves at the office when Smith and the others turn up to collect him from the office, yeah, you have him trying to escape, led by Lawrence Fishman. And he tries to escape. He's told to escape via the window by Lawrence Fishburne. Mm -hmm. And he says, I can't do it. And he drops down. And he comes off the ledge. And the next shot is of him being led into the car by Agent Smith and Trinity seeing it through her mirror. And you think, well, this is kind of like with Indiana Jones, it's something we looked at. It's a believable character. This is not really an action hero. This is someone who, when faced with having to climb across a fire escape, does not behave like Bruce Willis, mm. does not behave like someone who can automatically do that. He thinks, I can't do this because I'm an ordinary 30-something human who works in an office and this is ridiculous. Yes, it's all those films. Like, it has many fantastical elements to it, a huge amount of elements. But I think it's, it does ground itself in reality. One thing that I just kind of just occurred to me then when you're talking about that scene is very often in the start of the film, we enter the action through a TV screen. Mm. So a great example is the scene in which it's interrogated by the, by the agents. The shot before we enter the... Like it's, a, it's a bank of monitors. It's a bank of monitors in which you're showing him sitting in this room. And we move forward through the screen, kind of does a, fit, like a static thing, and then we're in the room. So we're always being reminded of the kind of I suppose the filmic nature of this, what we're watching, like we, we aren't shown to buy into it. There's all these little things throughout it where we are kind of shown to be moving through a screen into things. Mm. And there, there, there's a an analogy there of filmmaking in many ways, you know, that the, the coming together, creating a reality, all that kind of thing. And also you have some, something that I touched on at the end there is that certain shots will not just be through television screens or computer monitors but 
will be through mirrors. Mm. They'll always be mediated in some way. So you have Trinity witnessing a scene through the mirrors on her motorbike. So there will always be, I mean, going back to the Baudrillard that mentioned right at the start, simulacra and simulation focuses the idea that modern society has replaced reality and meaning in in many cases with symbols and signs. So everything is mediated, everything is is seen as being a sign of something else. And that's something that you get the Wachowski brothers doing not only in TV monitors, but in in the way that every entrance is mediated like that. Mm. That kind of comes back to this, this other recurring theme through the film of a bit of dreams. Mm. And the idea, as I say, in terms of reality, of what is real, what isn't real, that kind of thing. You've got Morpheus, obviously, the reference to uh, sort of the, the dream character. You've got he he talks about uh, being in a dream you can't wake up from. A few people say that you know I thought that felt like a dream, it was a dream I couldn't wake up from. All that kind of thing, and we have the idea of reality and what is reality. You know, obviously the, the Matrix isn't reality, but you've then got the Cipher character saying you know at the same time it's just important to your brain, it's everything reality is. And I think it's interesting that in, t- in terms of filmmaking and narrative work that. They don't make out that reality, the real reality outside of the Matrix, is good. Yeah. The Matrix is the cool place to be. And I think it, it would be very easy to just create this utopia world. Zion is this utopia where everyone's happy and lovely and all that sort of thing. You know, welcome to freedom and all that kind of thing. But they don't do that. And we'll touch more on that next week when we start to see Zion in the second film. But the Nebuchadnezzar itself is a rust bucket. It is, you know eating slop and everyone shaved their heads and all that kind of thing mm. and it didn't, it didn't have whereas the semen you know, Cypher who is the traitor eating his steak and you know just ignorance is bliss and it is like the, the reality of being in the Matrix day to day seems like to be a lot better life a lot better reality than reality hmm it reminded me of something not at all to do with film there but something like the futuristic sections of the crystal maze which has several i suppose philosophical links to the matrix trying to think about desires and alternative realities but it had this griminess to it it was thinking about the way that progress was about grime Mm. and the future was not necessarily a nice place to be Yes. So when you had the sections of the maze to do with the future, they weren't necessarily somewhere you wanted to stay. It's a kind of dystopian future. Mm. And this one's interesting because you have a dystopian future, but the idea is that the dystopia is better, he says, because you're free, than the utopia. Exactly, yeah. It is interesting that it doesn't... We talk about reality and real characters and real heroes... And whilst Morpheus doesn't seem like a real person, and neither does Trinity, this film does seem to ground itself in a reality. And I say that obviously in slightly caveats of obviously it's a futuristic film in which a hovercraft hacks into a, a global network of human brains. But it feels textured. Mm. And it feels... It's a, it's a narrative trick, and I'm very happy for that. But they, they find a way to justify you know, the, 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 the wire-foo of the fights and gunfights and the brutal murder of so many human lives in their work. 
by making it in the Matrix. But because you've got this outside world with this kind of tin run-down Nebuchadnezzar, it has a texture to it. The film feels lived in. Mm. And the world they're in, so many sci-fi films, even the ones that are seeking for a dystopian sort of look, don't, they feel like the critics for the film. They feel fresh and clean. And I was like, well, this feels, feels dirty and a bit shit at times. It feels like Looper. Mm. That was something that, there was a time travel film, but it felt, felt something timeless about it. And the future wasn't necessarily the best thing. And I enjoyed that aspect of the time travel film. Like, on, on, a, on a bigger scale, I suppose, something like Star Wars is about the past. It has a complicated relationship with what the word futuristic means, given that it's set way in the past. But it feels timeless mm. in the way The Matrix does. I wonder whether this is... I suppose 1977 was a turning point in cinema for the way that the way that people thought about the past and present and Star Wars was important for that. It it felt to me like this was a real turning point not just in in narrative terms but in terms of the spectacle the thing you've been we've been talking about so much mm. today is that I don't know whether it's is this book about the history of cinema that's made me think about this but it just felt like cinema had spent well over a century since eighteen ninety six trying to make something artificial appear as if it's real, mm. something that's a spectacle appear like it's just reality, and here you've got that being turned on its head. You have a film that says what we think of as reality is actually a spectacle, and we don't know what is real, as Morpheus says several times to Neo we we don't know what reality is I felt that was an important thing about this film it almost and I often claim films are this but I feel it's very Brechtian in that kind of sense of that there is a story and there's a narrative but we are reminded on again that it isn't we aren't put to buy into it but we are and it's, it's, it's a there's a distancing there to what's going on the reality and the the things they can do in the Matrix clearly remove it from reality. But by having the train scene, they bring it back into reality. So there's, there's like a, a disconnect there between those two things. I think it keeps it interesting, so to say, if it, if it lived in one or the other. And I think we'll get into the second sequels and the sort of the good things and the bad things about them over the next couple of weeks. But I do, I would hang my hat and say that this one was one of the best and most interesting action films of the 90s, certainly. Hmm. Well, I think I could talk about film history for a long time and Rob could talk about Brecht until sometime next week. So we should stop there and just say we're looking forward to talking about the next film next week. Um, do you have any recommendations for us, Rob? I do, I do. I, I have two. One of which is kind of filmic based on our theme and one based on sort of people. So my first one based on the theme is the 2009 film Avatar from James Cameron. Tells the story of a, a marine sent to Pandora to become a Navi. It is Fern Gully, it is, um, it is Dancer with Wolves, it is Pocahontas, it's all these things. But it was another film that was very much sold to the audience in terms of technical expertise and, and film as a technical experience. Mm. It was the birth of the modern 3D movement 
and there's all talk of motion capture and unlike something like both Lord of the Rings where we're looking at the motion capture of Gollum being an interesting a, a, a niche interest this was sold to us as that you've got to see this this has to be seen to be believed kind of thing so if you're looking at sort of film as technical expertise Avatar's a very good look at great my second recommendation is very much the other end of the scale and that's the 1996 film Bound this is the film that the Wachowskis made before he made Matrix. It tells the tale of two lesbians who contrive to steal millions of mob money from one of their boyfriends. It's Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon as the two main two main characters, and you've got Joe Pantolino who plays Cypher in, in The Matrix. Um, so the same director, a few of the same actors. It is very, very good. It's nothing like The Matrix beyond being kind of grimy and dirty in that kind of way. It's very, very good. And we once managed to convince one of our teachers at school to let's watch it during class. Which, given it has some very graphic sex scenes, we got away with. Brilliant. Mr. Sharma. Go on, Mr. Sharma. My recommendations for this week are... Well, the first one is something that was linked to by the aesthetic of the film, the black and green. You have the black and green code being used at the start and throughout to convey the aesthetic of the Matrix. And it's something that Wachowski Brothers have said they were visually indebted to, is the 1995 anime Ghost in the Shell. I thought of recommending it. I thought about that. Ah, there you go. That's a visual ancestor that I'd recommend. And then my second one is more thematic than visual. But actually, I suppose there are some links in the tone, the colour palette used. It's the 1999 film Fight Club. Mm. And I was thinking about it because of the same sense of ennui with office life and the way that Keanu Reeves is really not enamoured of his job at all. And you get that, that scene in the office at the beginning. But I thought Fight Club was another interesting 1999 film that has... Well, the original text has some lots of interesting things to say about uh, Western capitalism, but the the film did a lot in the same year that The Matrix did. And maybe, I mean, it's something that I need to go back and watch because maybe it's a film that I underrated in, in the same way. Excellent. Well, guys, you can find us all online. I am back online now, ready to chat. I have been away, but I'm back now. So you can find me at Rob Kaiju. You can find me at life underscore academic and you can find both of us at prestige podcast and we'll be back next week with the matrix reloaded the prestige is a kaiju industries production check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash kaiju industries Rawr. Arg.